Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Reese Jones, the author of the book, Nobody is Protected, How the Border Patrol Became the Most Dangerous Police Force in the United States. Reese, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. Can you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in this subject? Yeah, I'm a professor of geography and environment at the University of Hawaii, um, and I've been studying borders and immigration for 20 years. And about, about a decade ago, I was in Texas doing some research for a book about border walls. Um, and I was with a rancher and we were driving to his property along the U.S.-Mexico border, but we were on a public highway in Texas. Um, and it was about an hour that we drove there and back. And during that one hour period of time, we were stopped by the border patrol five times, pulled over, you know, sirens, everything. Um, and one of those stops, they searched our vehicle as well. And uh, I was just shocked by this. I, I knew that the border patrol was active in the border zone, but I didn't realize that they could stop the same vehicle five times in less than an hour for just driving on a public road. And so I decided that I needed to look into this and to understand what's the, can they really do that? Um, and then if so, what is the legal history that gives them that authority? And the, that set me off on the journey to, to write this book that's culminated with, with Nobody is Protected. So what would you say was the thing that was most surprising to you as a non-attorney looking into the law surrounding the Border Patrol? Yeah, th thanks for mentioning that I'm not an attorney. Yeah, I'm a geographer, so I've had to do a deep dive into legal history, and I've learned a lot about the Supreme Court and legal precedents, um, but it's not what my training is in. So, um, But uh, I think I've, I've got a good background now. You know, the thing that really surprised me about a lot of this stuff is um, how extensive the border zone is, where the Border Patrol can operate, and also the number of exceptions they have to the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution that give them ability to do things that other police just are not allowed to do. And so in my research for this book, I delved into the, the precedents, the Supreme Court, Court decisions that approved a lot of these uh, constant these uh, congressional authorizations that give them this authority. Um, so just to kind of uh, lay some some groundwork for that, the um, so first of all, we're we're talking about the border patrol today. Um, I know a, a lot of people tend to not be that familiar with all the different immigration police that the U.S. has, but the border patrol they wear green uniforms. Their job is to patrol between points of entry into the United States, and um, based on their congressional authorization, they can do that within a reasonable distance of the border, which in 1947 was set as within 100 miles of borders and coastlines. So it's a vast area um, that includes uh, approximately two thirds of the U.S. population, a number of the largest cities in the U.S., Chicago, Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., Honolulu, where I live here. There's nowhere in the state of Hawaii that's more than 100 miles from a coastline. So the entire state is a border zone as are a number of other states like Florida, Michigan, Rhode Island, Maine, New Jersey. So 
that's the Border Patrol, and that's who we're talking about today. The other border agencies, though, just to, to clarify so everyone is clear on what we're talking about, there are other sections of Customs and Border Protection. So if you go through an airport or enter at a point of entry, you'll interact with Office of Field Operations agents, um, and they wear blue uniforms. They're the ones that check passports and do customs work. Um, then there's also a whole separate part of the Department of Homeland Security, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which is ICE, um, which is familiar, I think, to a lot of listeners. And they operate across the entire United States, but their job is to find people who have a violation of an immigration order and remove them. Um, so today we're really focused on the Border Patrol, who ostensibly their job is to prevent immediate entries into the United States. But as we'll, we'll discuss today, that mission has continued to creep and creep and creep into a lot of other activities deeper and deeper inside the country. Let's touch really quickly on how the Border Patrol was founded and when it was founded. So the Border Patrol, this is another thing that I think that surprises a lot of people, but the Border Patrol was founded in 1924. So the U.S. did not have any federal border enforcement patrol until almost 150 years after the Declaration of Independence. The Border Patrol was created in 1924 to enforce the uh, national origins quotas, which had passed Congress two days earlier and been signed into law. Um, The national origin quotas were these, it's hard to come up with another word other than racist rules about who could enter the country. They were based on eugenics ideas of intelligence, um, and they were designed to create a preference for white Northern European immigration and to prevent immigration from most of the rest of the world. So um, people from Asia were completely banned um, in this law, and people from Southern and Eastern Europe had very restricted quotas for entering the United States. Um, And so the Border Patrol was established to enforce these racial entry rules into the U.S. So you focus on four key cases that came before the Supreme Court that really impacted the Border Patrol. And what I found interesting was this was a full 50 years or so after uh, the 1924 beginnings of the Border Patrol. So for about 50 years before there were these cases, you described this as kind of a a, a wild west. Uh, What were some of the things that you found were going on in the first few decades uh, of the Border Patrol's existence? So the people the Border Patrol hired as the earliest agents tended to have come from frontier law enforcement or groups like the Texas Rangers, which in the at the turn of the last century had a reputation for extreme violence and uh, ethnic removal of um, Native American groups um, and people of Mexican origin from the, the Texas uh, borderlands. Um, and those people were hired directly into the Border Patrol. So the early agents were really rough, were had a kind of a, a lawless reputation where the, the things that they did to them created the law. And the, the early congressional authorization for the Border Patrol was also pretty expansive. It says that the agents could board and search any vehicle without a warrant to do an immigration inspection. But if you, as I talk about in the book, the early congressional leaders thought that when they were authorizing this, they were authorizing it right at the borderline. 
Um, and they did not anticipate that the agents would be patrolling inside the United States and doing these warrantless inspections and boarding and searching of vehicles. But what we see happening is the agents on the ground saying, well, we have to do it a little bit inside of the U.S. because, you know, we if we see someone cross, we have to chase them down and then we have to check their documents. And so it's got to got to extend a little bit into the interior. And there was back and forth about this. There were hearings in Congress trying to move the Border Patrol back to the borderline and not patrol in the United States. Um, but eventually in 1946, Congress revised the authorization and said that the Border Patrol could do their work within a reasonable distance of the border, but didn't define what that was, left it up to the agency define. Um, and in 1947, they defined that as within 100 miles of borders and coastlines. And so as I talk about in the book, it creates this period where the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution says that citizens and immigrants alike are are free of unreasonable searches and seizures by police and that police need a warrant um, to do that versus the Border Patrol's authorization, which says they can stop and search any vehicle without a warrant for the purpose of immigration enforcement. And then after 1947, that's defined as 100 miles of borders and coastlines, which is a vast area. And so it doesn't actually reach the Supreme Court, though, until the 1970s. And uh, why that took so long, one is that in the early years, the Border Patrol was just really small. Um, in the 1930s and 40s, we're talking about just a few hundred Border Patrol agents. And it's really not until after 1965, when there was a revision to the Immigration Act that criminalized uh, immigration from Mexico. Prior to 1965, people um, from Mexico and from all of the Americas were free to enter the United States um, without a visa. After 1965, there's a quota to immigration from the Americas. And so we see a huge increase in the number of apprehensions by the Border Patrol in the late 60s and early 1970s. And along with that, there is the, the lawyers for these individuals who start to contest this claim that the Border Patrol can search any vehicle within 100 miles of borders and coastlines, um, which was a, a pretty outrageous claim. And so it it. In the book, I focus on the main cases um, in 1973, 1975, and 1976 that consider in 1973, which is Alameda Sanchez versus United States, whether they can search any vehicle without a warrant in the borderlands. Um, then 1975, which is Brignone Ponce or Ponce, depending on how you want to pronounce it, um, which considered whether they could stop any vehicle for any reason, including the race of the driver in the borderlands. Um, and the 1976 is Martinez Fuerte, which considers whether they can set up checkpoints on American highways up to 100 miles from the border and stop every single vehicle for a brief questioning about immigration status. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. But when we return, I'm going to be speaking to Reese Jones about two attorneys who were involved in all four of these cases. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. 
Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm here with Reese Jones talking about his book, Nobody is Protected. So Reese, something I found interesting was these two attorneys, John Cleary and Chuck Sevilla. Can you please talk a little bit about them, how they became involved in this area, and then how they ended up having these four incredibly influential cases before the Supreme Court? Yeah, so John Cleary and Chuck Sevilla were federal public defenders in San Diego, California in the early 1970s. Um, And so when there was this large increase in the number of apprehensions by the Border Patrol, they were at the front lines of the legal questions about whether the Border Patrol could search any vehicle, stop any vehicle, um, set up checkpoints on major interstate highways to check every single vehicle for the citizenship status of the people in the cars. And so although they were young and relatively inexperienced lawyers, um, they saw the Fourth Amendment questions here, and they were the ones that took these cases um, to the Supreme Court. The 1973 case was a situation where the man had been stopped 20 miles north of the border driving a vehicle. He turned out to be a permanent resident of the United States. So he was legally in the United States, but the border patrol decided to just go ahead and search his vehicle anyway, even though they had no reason to believe that he was a smuggler or had anything illegal in the vehicle. But upon searching it, they did find marijuana in his car. Um, And so the 1973 case, Alameda Sanchez um, versus United States was about whether they really could search every single vehicle in the border zone. And what I do now, these these cases are now over 40 years ago. And so most of the justices have passed away and their papers are now public and are either at the Library of Congress or in libraries, uh, law libraries around the United States. And so we can now go and look at the behind the scenes deliberations that they had when they were making these decisions. And so what I do in each of the cases is present the oral arguments, but then go behind the scenes and look at what the justices were doing as they decided these cases. And it turns out in this search case in 1973, they they were poised to say that the Border Patrol could search any vehicle without any reason, without a warrant um, in the entire border zone. So until about two weeks before the final decision was announced, the justices were split five in favor of the Border Patrol and four in favor of Mr. Alameda Sanchez. But as I detail in the book, there was one clerk in Lewis Powell's offices who felt very strongly that this was an illegal search and that it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um, And he was able to convince Lewis Powell about two weeks before the, the ruling came down to switch his vote. So Powell had already indicated that he was on board with the Border Patrol opinion, but after a long discussion with this, this clerk, he changed his mind 
and switched his vote. And that swung the entire court's decision to be that it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And so that's that's the result, is that um, the Border Patrol could no longer do searches in the border zone like they were doing before. Um, and instead, they have the same rules for searches as regular police. They need either probable cause, consent, or a warrant to conduct a search in the border zone. So, Reese, let's talk about the title of your book, Nobody is Protected. How'd you arrive at that? Yeah, the title is a quote from Thurgood Marshall um, during the first of the Supreme Court's cases looking at the Border Patrol's practices, um, Alameda Sanchez versus United States in 1973. In the oral arguments, Marshall was interrogating the government lawyer about the true extent of the government's position about what the Border Patrol could do. So first, they were asking, can the Border Patrol stop any vehicle? And and the lawyer said, yeah. He's like, well, okay, could you stop my vehicle? As a Supreme Court justice, if I'm driving through the borderlands, you could stop and search my vehicle. And he says, yeah. And so then Thurgood Marshall says, well, what about the president of the United States? If the president of the United States was driving in the borderlands in the 100 mile border zone, could you stop and search the president's vehicle? And the lawyer kind of pauses and thinks about it and then says, yeah, that we could. And so then Thurgood Marshall responds, nobody is protected. And now let's get into the subhead, how the Border Patrol became the most dangerous police force in the United States. What do you think? makes the Border Patrol the most dangerous police force in the United States? Yeah, well, I would say the the next two cases in 1975 and 1976, which were both written by Lewis Powell, who was an associate justice of the Supreme Court. He was also the president of the ABA in the early 1960s. He, in both of those cases, they created a situation where although the Border Patrol can't search any vehicle, they can stop virtually any vehicle in that 100 mile zone. And both of those decisions as well said that the Border Patrol can use racial profiling in those decisions. So they can use the race of a driver um, as one of the primary factors to decide whether to stop and interrogate um, the driver of that vehicle. Um, And so those decisions create this 100 mile zone where those normal protections against getting stopped by the police are gone and the Border Patrol can stop virtually any vehicle in that zone. On top of that, this term, um, the current Supreme Court in Egbert versus Boulay, this was a case where a Border Patrol agent in Washington state, Eric Egbert, had uh, gone onto the property of a man named Robert Boulay. Robert Boulay was owned a uh, bed and breakfast that was right on the U.S.-Canada border. Um, the bed and breakfast is actually called the Smuggler's Inn. Um, so it, it's uh, the guy's a pretty colorful guy. But the Border Patrol agent um, went onto his property, shoved Robert Boulay onto the ground, um, and shoved him against a car. So it was a clear assault for no reason. But the the case was about whether. Robert Boulay could sue the Border Patrol agent for damages for violating his Fourth Amendment rights. And the Supreme Court ruled that he could not. So they essentially hollowed out the 1971 Bivens decision, which had given um, some space for citizens to sue federal agents for violations of rights. Um, but these, this 2020 case, 2022 case, gives the, um, the Border Patrol 
immunity from prosecution for violations of uh, constitutional rights if those violations happen in the normal course of their duties. Um, so what that means is the Border Patrol has the ability to stop any vehicle in the zone. They can set up checkpoints anywhere that they want in that zone. Um, and if they violate your fourth, your constitutional rights, there's no recourse to sue the agents for those violations. So we've talked about the 100-mile border, and I really think if my listeners have not yet seen a map, I've seen some circulating on Twitter, really outlining and highlighting the areas that fall within the 100-mile zone, it is much larger, much broader than you think. And it's because coastlines, as well as the borders between Canada and Mexico, are included. So, you know, as we said, uh, I am sitting in Evanston, Illinois, right north of Chicago. I am in a border zone. Uh, the Border Patrol could be here. I will attempt to find and put on the ABA Journal website, abajournal.com slash books, this photo showing the map. But as a geographer, was that was that startling map to see when you were taking a look at what was covered by this 100-mile zone? Yeah, it, it's definitely startling. It it supports, though, what a number of scholars who study the border have argued for a number of years, which is when we say the border, we often think of it as a fixed line, as, a, as an exact location, a line on a map that exists on the ground. It's where the wall gets built, things like that. Um, but the reality is that the work of enforcing borders has for many years extended out beyond the border. Um, so kind of a border externalization um, to try to stop people before they are able to even arrive at a country. We see the U.S. doing this with agreements they have with Mexico, um, Central American countries. The Euro European Union does a lot of this as well with efforts to prevent people from even being able to get to the Mediterranean, for example, to try to migrate to Europe. But we also see that pushing in of the border where we see this continuous creep of the Border Patrol further and further from where they've traditionally done their work. Um, so another reason that I think the Border Patrol is so dangerous right now is because they're a quite large agency. If you consider Customs and Border Protection as a whole, they've got over 60,000 employees. It's the largest police force in the U.S., and the Border Patrol specifically has about 20,000 agents, um, which is a dramatic increase from what they had just a few decades ago. In, in 1990, there were only about 3,500 Border Patrol agents. But over that period of time, the number of apprehensions that they're making um, have remained relatively consistent. Um, we do have ups and downs. The last two years have been on the higher end, closer to the previous records in years like the year 2000. Um, but Prior to that, the numbers were lower than they had been um, in previous decades. So we have far more agents than we had in the 1970s or the 1990s, but with about the same amount of work to do. Um, and so what it means is they're doing these things in places that they never did before. Um, so one example of that is the checkpoints that they use. Historically, those were almost exclusively at the southern border. But in the last 10 years, they've been doing more of them at the nor northern border um, in states like New York and New Hampshire and Maine, um, in places that are unaccustomed to border enforcement. And 
what I suggest in the book is that that could continue into the future, right? If we try to project forward, you know, it's about 50 years since these key decisions were made in the 1970s. If we project forward to what the Border Patrol might look like 10 or 20 years from now, at the rate that it's going, it's going to be a much larger agency. And who knows where they're going to be setting up these checkpoints, although they haven't set up checkpoints between Chicago and Evansville yet, they can. And as we've seen with the expansion they've done in the recent years, that it seems likely that they will start to use that authority in other places. A final concern about why the Border Patrol is dangerous is there are other provisions of the Department of Homeland Security authorization that were written in the aftermath of September 11th and the creation of that department, but they give the secretary quite large authority to repurpose federal agents and use them for other things. And we saw this, um, the Trump administration used this for the first time in the summer of 2020, when um, there were social justice protests across the United States, they redeployed border patrol agents to protect federal buildings. But um, the, the regulation says that they can do that on and off site and that they can make warrantless arrests for any crime. So it means that essentially, if you read it quite broadly, it could be the language of creating a national police force. Um, So in Portland, Oregon, for example, you may remember there were videos of these late night detentions where an unmarked minivan would suddenly pull up beside someone, armed agents would jump out and grab the person off the street, throw them into the minivan and speed off with them. That was the border patrol that was doing that in Portland, that was making these these, uh, detentions. So The thing that's concerning about the agency is that they have a lot of surveillance material, they have a lot of weapons, they have a lot of agents, um, and they don't have that much immigration stuff to do. And so they're poised for, say, a future authoritarian leader in our country to use them for these other purposes. Um, And they've already showed that they're willing to do that when called upon. Uh, Speaking of those other purposes, uh, I want to get back to checkpoints a little bit because there are many areas in the country, many areas that my listeners may be coming from where they don't have any experience of checkpoints. Although I know, for instance, within Texas, you know, there are many checkpoints and people have a lot of experience with having to go through them. You know, a Midwesterner may not understand what this would look like. So at a checkpoint, Are they stopping every car? Are they just kind of waiting for cars they think are suspicious? What does a checkpoint look like when you encounter it? So the Border Patrol operates 113 checkpoints, um, and about 40 of those are on the northern border. The rest are on the southern border um, from California all the way to Texas. And they're typically 25 to 100 miles from the border itself. So we're talking about interstate highways, and we're talking about back roads in these states. And what these checkpoints look like, the permanent ones, which are on like the interstate highways, they are complete facilities. They have a cover over the highway for the agents to stand under. There are big signs before you get there telling you stop ahead federal agents. There's entire office buildings built on the side of the road for detentions. And yes, they stop every single vehicle. So the 1976 case was Martinez Fuerte, which is the one that dealt with the checkpoints. And they, in the case, the Supreme Court agrees that it accounts, it amounts to a seizure 
of every single vehicle for brief questioning about the immigration status of the people inside. So they're allowed to ask questions. So they can ask what your status is. And then also while that car is stopped, they can do a visual inspection of the interior. So they can look inside to see if they see anything on the floor. And they've started to walk canines around the vehicles as well to sniff for drugs. Um, they say the canines can also sniff for people, but the evidence suggests it's primarily for drugs. And they also have, most of the checkpoints have automated license plate readers. So when your car pulls into the checkpoint, it automatically takes your license plate and puts it into a DEA database where it's kept for 15 years. Um, many of the checkpoints also have radiation sensors which are designed to search for dirty bombs. Um, they've never actually found a dirty bomb, but they have found a lot of people who had previously had cancer treatments. Um, so um, for example, about a decade ago, the former governor of Arizona was driving from Nogales to Tucson and arrived at the Border Patrol's checkpoint. And he was 96 years old at the time. And Raul Castro was his name. And he had just had a cancer treatment and it set off the radiation center. And so they pulled him out of the car, made him stand outside in 100 degree heat for 30 minutes while they searched his vehicle. So it's these they're, they're extensive. The, what can happen at these checkpoints. And the 1976 ruling said that they can they can stop every single vehicle without any cause at all. They don't have to have any reason to ask you your immigration status. And then in order to divert your car for a secondary inspection, they only need to have the agents call it mere suspicion. So they need to have some reason why they want to send you to secondary inspection. But, and the the 1976 ruling says that that reason can be the race of the driver. So that alone, according to that decision, is sufficient to send a car to do secondary inspection. You'd said maybe not that many people have experienced these uh, checkpoints, but there was a report that came out a few weeks ago that detailed the period from 2016 to 2020. And that report said that 250 million vehicles pass through an interior border patrol checkpoint in that five-year period, 50 million per year. Um, so it is a substantial number of people that are having their I would say having their constitutional rights infringed by these checkpoints. And we can talk about this a little more in a minute, but who are they catching at these checkpoints? They're predominantly catching American citizens who have never left the country um, and citing them for drug violations. One of the reasons I wanted to talk more about the checkpoints is it has been raised that this could in the future perhaps be another way to track pregnant women who may be trying to travel out of states where abortions are no longer available to states where they are. Or in the case of a national ban on abortion, these checkpoints could function somewhat in the same way to track pregnant women or pregnant people as they travel, perhaps for the suspicion that, oh, are you trying to get an abortion? So, you know, I had, I had, read this speculation around the same time I was reading your book and I was trying to find a really definitive thing that would say, oh yeah, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't fall under this checkpoint system or be something the border patrol could check. And I I'm, came away not reassured. What, uh, I know this is speculation, but what do you think about, about the power that the border patrol could potentially have to do that sort of tracking? It's a concern. I mean, I think we can already say that women who are undocumented, for example, 
and live in the southern parts of these states like Texas that have put in place bans or severe restrictions on abortion, if they were to need to drive, for example, to a neighboring state in order to get an abortion, they wouldn't be able to do that because they would have to pass through this checkpoint and their immigration status would be checked at that, right? So um, so those women are already stuck by these checkpoints. In terms of doing other law enforcement at these checkpoints, this is a contentious issue because in the year 2000, in the case Edmond versus the city of Indianapolis, the Supreme Court ruled that generalized police checkpoints are not allowed under the Constitution, that police can set up a checkpoint, but it has to have a specific purpose. They can do a drunk driving checkpoint, for example, or the Border Patrol can do an immigration checkpoint, um, but they can't do just a general checkpoint to check for any sort of violations of law enforcement rules. But these Border Patrol checkpoints are increasingly looking like that, right? So the 1976 authorization says that there only for immigration. And it says that the ruling doesn't authorize anything outside of what it says in the in the opinion. But the Border Patrol, of course, in the years since has had all of these other things added to their remit, um, including drug smuggling, which wasn't part of their job in 1976, and uh, also terrorism prevention, which wasn't part of their job in 1976. Um, and so it's allowed for this kind of growing of the purpose of these checkpoints. Another similar problem is the Border Patrol has a series of agreements with local police so that if in the course of their inspections, they come across some sort of other violation, a local or state ordinance, they're in the practice of transferring that over to a local police officer. So in the book, I tell the stories of a couple different checkpoints, one in New Hampshire, um, another one in Arizona, where the local police have been posting one of their deputies there at the checkpoint. And so if the in the course of doing their inspection, for example, they find an amount of drugs that the federal government doesn't prosecute for, which is a small rec recreational amount, they'll transfer that over to the local police. Or if they see, you know, broken taillights and they want to cite for the traffic violation, um, they can transfer that over to the local police. Um, so I don't see any reason why they couldn't if there were local bans on people traveling to get an abortion and somehow they were able to determine that in the course of their questions about citizenship, which you would think would be difficult to determine, um, that they could transfer those to a local police officer at these checkpoints. They're already doing that for a lot of other issues. Now, towards the end of the book, you do come up with a series of suggestions about how we could reinforce uh, Fourth Amendment rights, how we can perhaps act legislatively or administratively to curb some of the more dangerous aspects of Border Patrol. Uh, so I'd love for you to share a few of those with my listeners in case they're feeling, uh, you know, pretty worried and want to want to see what they could do about this issue. So I should start, and I, I always clarify this, that my view is we shouldn't be enforcing these sorts of laws. I think that we should have open immigration policies where people are free to move anywhere on the face of the earth. So that should be the longer term goal to question the entire premise of using violence to prevent people from moving. Um, I, I think that's wrong fundamentally. Um, but I know that's a longer term thing, right? I mean, that it's a, it's a, a longer discussion. 
In the shorter term, there certainly are some things, um, immediate steps that could be taken to rein in the Border Patrol right now. And some of these would require new laws in Congress, but other things could be done by the Department of Homeland Security right now. Um, So, for example, we talked earlier about the 100-mile border zone. That is not in their congressional authorization. It just says a reasonable distance from the border. And in 1947, At that point, the Border Patrol was in the Department of Justice. They set it as 100 miles. The current Secretary of Homeland Security could start a process to review that and shrink that border zone. The Border Patrol makes almost uh, over 50% of their apprehensions within one mile of the border. So why not set the border zone at five miles of borders and coastlines, I guess? Um, And that would transform the practice of this and really limit it in a way that would undo a lot of the damage today. The second thing, the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security could decide to end the interior checkpoints. And that would have a lot of significant impacts. One, it would stop these, I would say, kind of outrageous offenses of the Fourth Amendment rights of citizens and immigrants alike um, at these checkpoints. But in addition to that, If we look at the issue of migrant deaths, for example, the 53 people who died in that trailer in San Antonio a few weeks ago, why were they in this trailer deep inside the United States? They're in that trailer because they're trying to get past the checkpoints, right? Um, The same thing for the deaths in Arizona. Um, The majority of the deaths happen dozens of miles from the border itself. The reason people have to trek 60 miles through the Sonoran Desert is because they have to get around the checkpoints at that 100-mile border zone. So a lot of the deaths and violence that happen in the border zone is because of that 100 miles and because of the checkpoints. Um, So those two things um, would be immediate ways to improve the constitutional rights of American citizens, but also to dramatically reduce the number of people dying trying to migrate. Well, Reese, I want to thank you so much for appearing on this episode of the Modern Law Library. And I want to thank my listeners for tuning in. If people would like to hear more from you or pick up the book, Nobody is Protected, how could they do that? Yeah, the book is available anywhere. Um, so they could they could go to their local bookstore and pick it up. And of course, you can get it on all the Amazon and websites like that. Also available in audiobook for all of those uh, listeners who, like me, love audiobooks. It's an audiobook. Yep, absolutely. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service. And if you have a book you'd like me to check out, You can always email me at books at abajournal.com.